0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 63, May 30th to June 5th, 1862. Last week, we spent all of our time in the Shenandoah Valley. Jackson was able to isolate two smaller federal forces and defeat them first at Front Royal, and then at Winchester. Besides the recapture of Winchester for the Confederacy, it did shift the attention of the Lincoln administration, who saw the 16,000-man army as a threat to the capital. Union troops under Banks were not completely destroyed, escaping due to lack of pursuit, so it was not quite a total victory. This week, we are going to get things going around Richmond with a rebel counterattack, trying to catch McClellan in a tough situation. Before we do that, let's check in on what's going on in North Carolina. So, we need to emphasize that although there were no major battles going on, this was still a continuation of Burnside's Carolina campaign. New Bern and Fort Macon had fallen by this point. A probe to destroy the canal leading to the Great Dismal Swamp in Virginia was not successful at South Mills. In May of 1862, there would be continued skirmishing between the two sides. It would come at a place called Tranter's Creek near Washington, North Carolina. Washington sits along the Pamlico River, right where the Tar River begins. Just for some geographic reference, it is north of New Bern and south of Elizabeth City. Just rest assured that this is all part of the gains for the Union that started with the Battle of Cape Hatteras and the opening of Pamlico Sound that started in 1861. Colonel John Badger Singletary had his 44th North Carolina Infantry in a position to potentially assault the town of Washington. He needed only artillery support, which he was waiting for along earthworks at Tranters Creek, a few miles outside of the town. With reports that potentially the rebels would attempt an assault, Colonel John Potter sent Lieutenant Colonel Francis Osborne to and the 24th Massachusetts, along with the 1st New York Marine artillery to dislodge them. On June 5th, the assault on the barricades would begin, with the infantry advancing under fire. Artillery and the gunboat pillow would open on the Rebel works. It was not until a bullet found Colonel Singletary, killing him that the tide of the battle turned. The 44th North Carolina would retreat without a pursuit from Osborne, satisfied the threat had been neutralized. There were 19 federal casualties, as opposed to four Confederates killed. Lieutenant of Artillery William Avery was awarded the Medal of Honor for his action during the fight. because so often I think it is important to have eyewitness accounts to better visualize I want to read an account of a herald correspondent that gives a good rundown of the battle. The column at length got in motion again from the widow's house, and the skirmishers, having descended the ravine, cautiously moved toward the bridge. The advance guard was from Company A and under command of Lieutenant Jarvis. Coming from under cover of the trees, they moved up the inclined plane at the foot of the bridge, and suddenly discovered a row of heads behind the breastwork of boards, and the guns all leveled toward them. Sergeant Shepard and a companion fired, and a heavy volley came in return. Lieutenant Jarvis fell at first fire. The rest of the advance returned the volley, and then fell back on the main body. Colonel Osborne immediately ordered forward the artillery, and in less time than it takes to narrate it, the gallant marines, under Lieutenant Avery, came dashing down the hill with their guns, which they stationed, one bearing on the enemy's front, through the arch of the sawmill, the other to the left of the bridge, raking the enemy on their right flank. The main body of the infantry also came forward on the double quick, while Captain Jocknick formed his cavalry on the brow of the hill ready to charge the enemy at the decisive moment, though, as it afterward happened, no opportunity was afforded to his men to strike a blow, owing to the nature of the affair. On account of the narrowness of the road, only three companies of the infantry could be brought into action at once, and the rest were disposed of in the rear, where they were ordered to lie down. With one company in the road and one on either side, The engagement regularly opened on our side. Lieutenant Avery discharged several rounds of shell and canister at the enemy's position, for they were so concealed in the bridge and behind the trees as to be completely out of sight. The infantry poured a terrific fire across on either side of the bridge, the riddle beams and posts of which soon gave token of the showers of balls, which were passing and repassing. A number of rebels had secreted themselves in the left of the cotton gin, and were firing very briskly when driven out by a shell which Lieutenant Avery lodged in the building. Others again were discovered, ensconced in the treetops on the opposite side of the creek. Lieutenant Avery elevated his pieces and fired a couple of rounds of canister through the branches, whereupon several bodies were seen to fall to the ground. At sight of which our boys burst into a prolonged cheer or yell. The steady firing of the artillery and the volleys from the 24th at length drove the rebels from the bridge, and, falling back, they kept up a desultory fire from the trees and the edge of the creek. At length, the word was given to charge. The artillery fired around to clear the way, and, under cover of the smoke and the effects of the canister, Our boys, with fixed bayonets, dashed upon the bridge, and headed by Colonel Potter, advanced on a run to the point where the boards had been taken up. Replacing them as best they could, they passed over and found themselves undisputed occupants of the field, for the rebels had fled down the creek and through the woods, leaving behind them three of their dead and a large quantity of muskets, shotguns, swords, sabers, and other weapons. Their route was thorough and complete. The ground was covered with pools of blood, showing that their loss was pretty heavy, though it is impossible to ascertain the exact figures, as they carried off all their dead and wounded except the three bodies above referred to, which they could not rescue owing to the heavy fire of our artillery on the spot where they were lying. At the opposite side of the bridge, the rebels had thrown up a temporary breastwork of cotton bales in an angular shape with the corner nearest the approach from the bridge. But it failed to serve them as a means of defense. Thus concludes the account from the Herald. It's always good to have a first-hand account, especially of these smaller affairs, even if there is maybe some room for embellishment. In that case, we can take it with a grain of salt. But I think often it's overlooked exactly how important these war correspondents were especially to the Civil War. Remember, it's not like CNN is sitting there reporting of things that are happening, right? You can't just turn on the TV and say, wow, I guess the Battle of Second Manassas happened today. It's completely different. These correspondents are going to be the ones who are taking down accounts like this, and they're going to be sending them to the papers or sending them back home. And in many ways, this is where folks are going to figure out that their loved ones have been wounded or killed, because of these kinds of accounts. We'll kind of talk about it when we get a little bit later in the year here, but actually on South Mountain, the site where the Battle of South Mountain is fought leading up to the Battle of Antietam, there's a monument there to war correspondence, Um, so I would like to take some time in the future to talk about that. Let's go ahead and head back over to just outside of Richmond, and fun fact, we can actually fly there since a lot of this stuff is happening around the site of the modern day airport. There was no airport back in 1862, in case you were wondering, I can confirm as such, unless you count Thaddeus Lowe's balloons which were present in scouting the rebel defenses. Remember that McClellan had set up his army in a position that could receive a northern movement from McDowell. The Confederates had formed into defenses three miles outside of the city. We have the common phrase that the Union army could hear the bells and see the spirals of the churches as they were so close to the rebel capital. McClellan's army, remember, has five corps, minus the sixth, that would be McDowell. Three of the corps were situated to the north of the Chickahominy River. These would be Porter, Franklin, and Sumner. Erasmus Keyes and Heinzelman would both have their corps south of the Chickahominy River. A fishhook describes exactly the layout, with Keyes being the most advanced, the barb of the fishhook, if you will. Keyes who, it should be noted, McCullen does not like and wants to replace, has Silas Casey's division in an advanced place called Seven Pines, not far from Fair Oaks. Casey was an old army veteran from Rhode Island. Later in the war, he would write an infantry tactics manual. Where his men camped, Seven Pines was named, you guessed it, because of a grouping of seven pine trees. Now recall that the Chickahominy River is really not all that impressive, but it is when it rains and swells up, becoming a bit of an obstacle, as well as making the surrounding area a swamp. It just so happened that in May of 1862, it had been raining, and this is exactly what happened with the Chickahominy. Joseph Johnson was planning to strike back at the advancing Federals. His best chance would be if the Union army was divided, which, fortunately enough for him, it was. In addition, no McDowell and his first corps would be there to help. As the Confederates had retreated after Williamsburg, they had destroyed the bridge crossings. This would mean the two isolated corps would be difficult to support. There would also be no way of knowing this, but McClellan was also ill and would not be able to take command of the army. Johnson would receive word from his cavalry that McDowell was being recalled to deal with Stonewall. It rained on May 30th, causing one group of Union pickets to almost be washed away. The time was right, Reinforcements had arrived to bolster the numbers of the defenders to 75,000 men. Johnson was secretive, not telling Davis or Lee his plan, but he would come up with a flanking movement that could win the day. James Longstreet would become the wing commander south of the Chickahominy, with Gustavus Smith the second wing commander. Men under D.H. Hill would engage Casey from the front, In the meantime, Longstreet's division would hit the Union right flank. Benjamin Houget and his mostly inexperienced division would attack from the south and find the northern left flank. Chase Whiting would come up after Longstreet's division from the same direction. If everything was in place, then the Confederates would outnumber the Federals on this part of the field by some 9,000 men. Part of the plan was Huger would have to inform Hill that he was in position. Hill would then start off his assault. The sound of combat would trigger Longstreet, and so too for Whiting. Here's the problem, though. Johnson does not really tell his subordinates the big picture. It's very similar to the lack of a clear objective at Shiloh. Johnson would have a conversation with Longstreet the morning of the assault, but it's one of those things we won't know for sure exactly what was said. Did Longstreet understand what was supposed to happen? Orders were all verbal, and there are none in writing. Still, one would think that Longstreet would have some kind of idea of what should be going on. It was not communicated, though, that Longstreet was the tactical commander for the assault. Some of this stuff is interesting to look at after the battle, but Longstreet is actually technically subordinate to Huget. And Huget, it's not clear whether he understands if Longstreet is the wing commander. That's not really communicated to him. So when Longstreet shows up, and has a conference with Huger. Longstreet's actually going to offer him command, because that's actually going to be the military etiquette. Huger is supposed to get in a position where he can technically relieve some of D.H. Hill's men, and as we're going to see, it's not quite going to play out that way. And as a result, it's going to be Huger that's going to get most of the blame for the defeat, spoiler alert there, of Seven Pines. You have to feel somewhat for Huget, because at the time of this battle, he's actually only 56 years old. If you see a picture of the guy, it looks like he's far older than that, and I'll try to post one onto the website, so make sure to check that out. To round out the rest of the Confederate forces, A.P. Hill and John Bankhead Magruder are going to keep their divisions in place so that they can check Porter and Franklin across the Chickahominy. As we mentioned in a previous episode, there were high bluffs that offered a good defensive position, so threat of getting overwhelmed there was slight, even though A.P. Hill was getting a hodgepodge of reinforcements and mostly inexperienced troops. On May 31st, the Confederates would be on the move. Now, Keyes and Heinzelman would claim they were not surprised by the attack. Keyes was quoted as having said his position was sure to attract the enemy to attack. A staff officer had wandered too far into the enemy lines and was captured, alerting the northern host that something was stirring. There were lines of Abatee and an earthwork redoubt known as Casey's Redoubt. Besides Casey's division, Darius Couch and his division were in an area where he could move to help if needed. Heintzelman and his corps with Hooker and Kearney were further back. Edwin Sumner and his corps would then be closest to answer the call if necessary. Longstreet would have a comedy of errors in the March to Seven Pines. His division is not on the correct road to begin the assault. Fuget, in that case, has to wait behind his division. Because of that, he is unable to let Hill know he is ready to go. Whiting tells Johnson that he has troops in front of him. Joseph Johnson is going to misunderstand and tell Whiting that he's supposed to have men in front of him. But these are not the right guys. Now, part of this conspiracy kind of cover-up is that Longstreet wants to use a different road than previously planned. He's not going to necessarily communicate that with the rest of his wing command but no matter how you cut it Huget never makes it to the battlefield so there's a lot of blame to go around and I think this sort of is a good example for how inexperienced still the armies are. D.H. Hill would grow impatient and begin the assault regardless of Huger and where he was. There were several hours behind schedule at this point. His attack would begin with Garland's brigade. Samuel Garland was a Virginian native and a descendant of James Madison. He had already been in combat at Manassas, Drainsville, and Williamsburg, being wounded in that battle. Facing Garland was the 103rd Pennsylvania, which had moved forward to the picket line. For a period of time, the Keystoners are able to check the Confederate advance, but were eventually pushed back. Casey would respond by leading a brigade to meet Garland. Garland's men were exhausted at having moved through the terrain, and now through the Abatee onto the open field. Terrain in this area is a problem with thick undergrowth and woods. To turn the tide, the additional brigades of Robert Rhodes and Gabriel Raines arrive. Rhodes was a graduate of the Virginia Military Institute and would be a division commander until his death in 1864. Gabriel Raines was a North Carolina native and military academy graduate who would be responsible for the setting of landmines on the peninsula. His field command would essentially end after Seven Pines, but he would still serve the Confederate army, setting up mines and torpedoes. Just as a quick aside, Reigns is shamed because of his usage of these land torpedoes, these mines, because it's seen as barbaric. It's an interesting contrast to when you get to, say, World War II, where there really isn't too much of a qualm in using landmines. Casey would withdraw back to the defensive works, but a spoiling charge would be conducted to halt the rebel momentum. Fierce fighting would continue with Anderson's brigade joining the fight. Brian Grimes of the 4th North Carolina would charge the Redoubt and penetrate the line, at one point grabbing a flag himself to rally his men. So far, Johnson had been unaware that a battle had commenced. An anomaly would occur, making it so that he could not actually hear the battle Called Acoustic Shadow. Remember, we were actually first introduced to Acoustic Shadow all the way back in 1861 at Wilson's Creek. Lee also arrived at the headquarters and mentioned how he could hear the firing. It should be pointed out again that Lee and Davis were not aware of the planned attack. Johnson would eventually receive word about Longstreet's situation and lead Whiting's division down the Nine Mile Road. I'm going to post a map to the website, but the Nine Mile Road and the Williamsburg Road are the two main roads that we're going to be dealing with here in the battle. That are fairly significant. In the meantime, D.H. Hill is able to push Casey back. Many of Casey's regiments were inexperienced troops and had had enough of the fight, retiring from the field. Keyes would have to throw Couch's men into the battle. Carney would also arrive, much as he had done at Williamsburg. With a new line established, the Confederates would begin their assaults under murderous fire. A Union private was quoted to having said that the enemy was mowed down as stalks of wheat are when a scythe is taken to them. John B. Gordon was commanding the 6th Alabama, and he would be sending his men into this murderous fire. We're going to be hearing a lot more from John Brown Gordon. The Georgia native is often considered to be one of the more successful generals who did not have any prior military training. He's going to survive the war and become a senator and governor for his home state. In May of 1862, the 6th Alabama would suffer 59% casualties, which is going to be the most of any regiment during the battle. It's also during this assault that Robert Rhodes is wounded and gives up command to Gordon. Gordon would see his 19-year-old brother wounded with a shot through the lung. John would believe that his brother had been killed although miraculously he would survive the wound. Also unbelievable is that John Gordon would not be wounded. After the battle, Gordon would report that all of his officers were either killed or wounded. Rhodes' brigade under first Rhodes and then Gordon would actually suffer some 50% total casualties during their assaults. Micah Jenkins would command a brigade in Longstreet's division. This brigade actually included Coppin's Zouaves from Louisiana. In an effort to break keys, he would launch a flanking attack through the thick trees. To accomplish this, he had to march his 1900 men almost as far north as Fair Oaks. Each of the regiments he encountered on the Union flank, he was able to overwhelm and roll. Eventually, this move combined with an attack from James Kemper, also of Longstreet's division, would dislodge keys. Jenkins had lost some 700 men in the assault, but he had accomplished his task, and the camp formerly of Silas Casey was occupied by the rebels before dark. Remember that Johnson was leading the men under Whiting toward Fair Oaks to join in the fight. While men under Darius' couch had marched to a position protected by Woods to see the Nine Mile Road, that led into the station. They would open fire on the Confederates, who would turn to face this threat. Darius Couch, the division commander, was actually not present at this point, being caught up in the action with keys. Assault would be repulsed by the Confederates, with brigade commanders among the casualties. Robert Hatton was killed, Wade Hampton being wounded, and Pettigrew captured couch was soon supported by men from John Sedgwick's division. These would be from Sumner's Corps. Sumner had reportedly had problems crossing the Chickahominy after McClellan had ordered him to support Keyes and Heinzelman. When told that the bridges were impassable, he barked, Sir, I tell you, I can cross, I am ordered. The older soldier was obviously trying to make up for his mistakes at Williamsburg. Cedric's men would stabilize the new line, and even counterattack the rebels. Whiting would call off any further attacks, having sustained numerous casualties. At around dusk, Johnson would go down, maybe the most significant part of this battle. Earlier in the day, he had chided a staff officer for ducking at the sound of bullets, saying that if you hear them, they have already passed. Johnson would be hit in the elbow and then knocked from his horse by a shell fragment. Removed from the field, he would be seen briefly by Davis, who although having his differences with his field commander, was obviously very sympathetic. If you think about it in the perspective of Jefferson Davis, now a second high-ranking officer has gone down so far in 1862. Albert Sidney Johnson being killed at the Battle of Shiloh, which was not a sweeping victory. Joseph E. Johnson is now wounded, and he cannot command further. On the night of the 1st, Confederate and Union troops would bed down where they were. So close were the two sides that Edward Cross of the 5th New Hampshire captured a Texan seeking directions. Gustavus Smith would take over for Johnson on June 1st. He would not be suited for Army command, however. Smith is one of those individuals, and you see some of these, especially early in the war, that are highly regarded, and there's not really a whole lot of evidence to necessarily back that up. Now, he's going to prove that he is not capable of Army command, so he'll be seen as a phony, right? John Pemberton is another one of these guys. We'll get into him a little bit later in 1863. He's definitely going to be at the forefront, but he's another one of these guys that don't really have a whole lot of a successful record to support them getting these high-ranking positions. Lackluster renewal of the assault will be taking up by Smith's men from Huger's freshly arrived division. William Mahone and Lewis Armistead would lead attacks along the Richmond and York Railroad, but they were met with resistance from Dick Richardson's division. Richardson has a lot of important characters under him at this point, I would like to mention. For one, he has Thomas Francis Marr and the Irish Brigade. He has Oliver Otis Howard, who will lose an arm at the battle. Carney would console Howard the latter stating that they could buy gloves together. He has William French and Francis Barlow. French was an old soldier known as Blinky by his men because he had a habit of blinking uncontrollably when excited. Barlow was a New York native and would have a very successful career, much like John Brown Gordon not having any prior military experience. On June 1st, the combination of Howard's and French's brigades, supported by Maher, would repulse Armistead and Mahone. Bernie and Geary would repulse attacks by Pickett and R.H. Anderson's men as well. Seeing no success anywhere, as the Union Army was sufficiently reinforced, Smith would call off the attacks. On June 2nd, the Confederates would withdraw. McCollin had rose from his sickbed long enough to ride around to cheering troops. Union casualties were 5,031 and the Confederates 6,134. It was to this state the largest battle in terms of loss in the Eastern Theater. Little Mac would write to his wife that he was tired of the carnage of war. Nothing really had been gained from the battle. Both armies were exactly where they were on May 30th. Longstreet, of course, would blame Huget for the failure of Johnson's plan. There were false reports that claimed as such, and Huget was not given a fair shake in defending his name. Most importantly, I think Gustavus Smith would relinquish command to Robert E. Lee at the conclusion of Seven Pines. For the next few weeks, Lee would reorganize, officially taking over the Army of Northern Virginia. It's sort of sad to say that this is the most significant thing that comes out of Seven Pines, but I tend to agree. There's a lot of what-ifs. If Johnson had not been wounded, what would have happened to him? What would have happened to the defense of Richmond? What would have even happened to Robert E. Lee? These are all interesting scenarios to think about, although these are all what-ifs. We will bring this episode to a close. Today, we had the action at Tranter's Creek in North Carolina, which is actually toward the end of the week, but it fit better in the beginning. We also had the battle at Seven Pines. Strategically, there was no real advantage gained, It was dubbed a Confederate victory in the South because it stopped McClellan, a Union victory in the North because their counterattack failed. It's actually going to be also divided in terms of the name of the battle. The Confederates would know the battle as Seven Pines because that is where they were more successful. The Union would know the battle as Fair Oaks because that is where they were more successful on the field we can officially welcome Robert E. Lee to the Army of Northern Virginia. Next week, we are going to actually conclude the Valley Campaign, as Jackson has some unfinished business with Union forces out there. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venno information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.